It is great to have everybody with us and to be able to uh, worship the Lord and celebrate his faithfulness. And it is good to see that church happens on Sundays other than Easter as well. So it's good to have you with us today. Earlier this week, I had a conversation with my mom regarding what things used to be like, specific to our family. She relayed a story to me that I would not have known about as I was simply too young when it happened. She was recounting the first time that my dad saw me and my twin brother. She recalled that she had given birth about a week or so earlier. She recalled loading the two of us up as well as my older sister into a Greyhound bus. We then made the two hour plus journey to Stanton, Virginia, which um, is in the very western part of the state where my dad was imprisoned. Unfortunately, this would not be the first nor the last time that my dad would find himself incarcerated. And I consider it nothing but pure grace that God provided a different path for me. As a pastor, I have visited many prisons throughout the years. Fortunately, I've always been on the good side of the window. Actually, I say that, and as I say that, I guess it was a couple years ago, we took a team to a prison here in the area. I say in the area, it's about an hour away. And we did a church service. And of course, the first thing I did when it was my turn to speak was I talked about the fact that I had a captive audience. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. None of them laughed at all. As we continued with this service, uh, at some point, the guards came in and they were doing a head count. And the next thing you know, they're ushering us to a, another room where we can be secure. And apparently someone was up on the roof and they were worried about someone with a gun and all that other stuff. I'll be honest with you, that was probably one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had. Um, but it was an opportunity where I knew at the end of the day, I should be leaving this place. On one particular occasion while I was making a visit, I remember being in a somewhat small room filled with cubicles, almost in a semicircle. At each cubicle, there was a window and a phone. On the other side of each window, an inmate would come and they would sit down. As I waited for the inmate that I was there to visit with, I couldn't help but notice the other visitors that surrounded me in that room. Because of the dynamics of the room, you could hear every conversation, at least one side of the conversation. There was one family in particular that caught my attention. It was a mother and her three small children. Each one took turns talking to daddy on the phone and placing their hands on the glass up against his. Mom's conversation revealed that he had been in there before and that he was going to be there for at least the next few years. They would see him again next Saturday. The thought went through my mind. I cannot imagine a life where crime and incarceration would become so normal. I mean, for these children, this would be the only way that they would know their dad. This would become their version of normal. 
What a sad story. But it's not a unique story. In fact, it's a story that has been told for thousands of years. Sure, it may not look exactly the same, may not always occur in a prison visiting room, but it's not a new story. Last week, I began a new series focused on the sermons that are brought to us throughout the book of Acts. Last week, we focused on Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and 3, and it bled over into Acts chapter 4 as well. No doubt they were very direct and they were very personal. No doubt they were also very much Holy Spirit inspired. And the result was that thousands of people would repent of their sins, becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And of course, we praise the Lord for this mighty work. Well, I want us today to look at a sermon that is delivered by a man named Stephen as recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 7. It should be noted on the front end that Stephen gets a much different response from what Peter received. As we'll look, you'll see that he speaks with the same boldness and authority that Peter spoke with. And few would argue as to whether he spoke with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He absolutely did. The message was spot on. However, even the most godly of messages will not always be received in the same way every time. Consider the fact that Jesus preached a message of repentance and redemption just about everywhere he went. Certainly there were many who believed and followed, yet there were also many Pharisees and other Jews who rejected his message. Now, if they rejected the message that was delivered through Jesus Christ. You can be assured that many would reject the message delivered by people like Stephen. So it's not the result that I want you to see today. In fact, by the way, one could argue that the result of Stephen's preaching was far more significant and impactful than that of Peter. Sure, Peter preached and there were thousands of people who trusted in the Lord. By the end of chapter 4 in Acts, we see about 5,000 people have decided to follow Jesus. You say, that's a pretty impactful thing. But when Stephen preaches, the people become so angry, and Stephen is actually stoned to death. He is killed, and the church scatters. And what happens is the gospel message that had been received and accepted by those 5,000 people plus by the end of Acts chapter 4 suddenly take that message and they spread the gospel throughout the entire world because they have been changed. They flee, making sure that they're not going to join Stephen. But that being said, they also end up becoming great missionaries because they've received an incredible hope. Let me just say, God works through us sometimes, but maybe not in the way we expect. So I want to take a look at his sermon. It's a little bit lengthy, lengthy, so we'll skip around a little bit, but it begins in Acts chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 2 today. See, Stephen says to the people, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Over the next 30 or so verses, he will then take them through a journey of remembrance. 
He tells them a story that begins with poverty and oppression, yet it leads to blessing and to freedom. It is the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses. In verse 5, Stephen notes that God didn't give an inheritance to Abraham, although God did promise one for his descendants. But that journey would be long and it would be hard. His descendants would basically be nomads without a place to call home. They would also become slaves, and that would later be fulfilled with 400 years of slavery. But God would bless them, even holding the oppressing nations accountable. I want to just pause for a second. This isn't in my notes, but I just talked about all of the difficulty that they would face And to imagine those acts of violence against them, the hardship that they faced, the idea would be God is not blessing them because we expect that if God blesses us, he will give us only good things. Yet Abraham's descendants would experience much. Sometimes it would come as very good things, sometimes not so much but his blessing rested on them anyways. I think one of the hardest things to deal with in the church today is this idea that if God loves you, he will give you only good things, but that is biblically not sound. If that is biblically sound, then God owes an apology to the people of Israel. God owes an apology to the disciples, most of whom gave their lives for their service to him. Did God not love them? Did not God not want to provide for them? He absolutely did. He cared very much for them. But the reality is God's blessing doesn't always come in the same shape and size. This story is not merely, not one of merely oppression from the outside either. You see, the problems exist within the people of Israel. For example, look at verse 9 for a minute. It says, and the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. The oppression of Israel did not begin with the Egyptians. It began with selfishness and sin from within God's own people. The patriarchs, according to that passage, were jealous of their brother, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And consider for a moment how far they have fallen in just a few short generations. Their great-grandfather, Abraham, didn't receive an inheritance, but he was spiritually rich. God called him to obey, and he believed God trusting him and receiving a great promise of blessing. Then you have Abraham's son, Isaac, followed by his son, Jacob. And now Jacob's sons have become so morally bankrupt that they would sell their own brother into slavery. What has gone wrong? This just goes to show you that each generation, each individual must choose for themselves whether or not they will serve the Lord. 
You cannot ride the coattails of your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents' faith. Too many of us will look at our heritage and we celebrate how devoted mom and dad were to the Lord or how devoted our grandparents were. We look at the history of this particular church and we think, look at the impact that they made. But their impact will not speak to whether or not you have an active relationship with Jesus Christ. You must choose this day whom you will serve. You cannot ride the coattails of other people of faith. Although I do want to just point out that the promised blessing to Abraham was still true. His faith and obedience to God did produce blessings upon his family for generations to come. God had promised him that your descendants will be blessed, and God kept his promise. Yes, they would walk through financial poverty and even spiritual poverty, yet God would still move them into freedom and blessing. God would use Moses as their deliverer. Look at verse 34. It says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then skipping down to verse 36, we read, This man, talking about Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Have you ever imagined the joy which these people would have experienced as they walked into freedom. 400 years in Egypt has passed. In the years that led up to Moses' appearance, they have experienced wicked oppression, so much so that Pharaoh has ordered that their babies be killed to fight against overpopulation among the Israelites. What a relief this must have been to walk in freedom. I mentioned it had been 400 years, so consider the fact that no Israelite alive at that time had ever tasted freedom. All they knew was oppression. While this must have been an exciting moment for them, the unfortunate reality is that sometimes in our highest moments, it doesn't necessarily turn into the blessing that it was intended to be. For them, this would be the beginning of a very ugly pattern in their history. Look at verses 36 to 43. It says, I know I read 36 to you already, but hear this because it kind of sets the stage. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. 
and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment here again because I want you to recognize that there is absolutely nothing that Stephen has said that any of the audience that day would have argued with. He's recounting their history, and every single one of them would have known that these things were true. Yes, Moses did lead them out of Egypt, but after he led them out of Egypt, the people did begin to question whether or not Moses was still alive. Moses is up on the mountain of God, and they know that something's happening up there, but they don't know what it is. And after a while, they decide, Aaron, we need you to make us a golden calf. And they begin to worship. Later on, not just with a golden calf, they would worship other gods. Moloch was actually one of the gods of the Canaanites, that they would go in and take their land, and they would worship these other gods. This became their history, and not a single person in the audience that day would have been able to object to anything that Stephen has said. In verse 36, God provided them with a deliverer. In verse 37, Moses is already foreshadowing the coming of another deliverer, much greater than he, it is actually Jesus Christ. The point is that when God gave them a deliverer, he already knew the pattern that would plague them. And that pattern would begin almost immediately with that golden calf, but it would continue for centuries. This became a part of who they were. You would see it under the leadership of Moses, Joshua, King David, and even King Solomon. What intrigues me most is that in each of those four examples, Moses, Joshua, King David, and King Solomon, each time the people intimately experience the presence of a holy God. It is so easy to see that the Spirit of God was resting upon the people, that he was showing up and he was doing miraculous works in their midst, yet each generation still yielded to the temptation to worship false gods. The point is that God has been very good to them, just as he has been very good to us. But for some reason, mankind tends to still choose unfaithfulness. We don't appreciate his goodness to us. So I challenge you for a moment to consider how good God has been to you. I'm reminded of the words from Romans 12:1, which says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What mercy has God shown to you? What are the blessings that he has extended to you? Where has forgiveness been necessary? 
yet he granted it so freely. My guess is that each of us can pinpoint many examples of God's mercy extended to us. Now I ask you, how have you responded to God's goodness and mercy in your life? That verse from Romans 12 calls us to respond by offering ourselves back to him. Yet the people of Israel repeatedly go back to their sin. The list of false gods seems long, and I wonder how different we are from them. God has revealed himself to us. He has extended his presence to us, allowing us to intimately experience him, yet many of us will respond with our love for everything but God. And the truth is that we're just walking the same path that many others have walked already. Maybe you say, well, Pastor, you don't really understand what it's like. Maybe you don't think the, that God understood the type of temptation that you would face. Maybe you think that what you're experiencing is much worse than what anybody else has ever had to experience. I will tell you that temptation does seem great today. And the suffering in our world can be overwhelming at times, but no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. God will not let us slide because the temptations seem to be greater. I was reminded this week of the difficulties which Daniel experienced. He was taken into slavery as a young man. He probably witnessed his own family being killed. He probably watched the temple burned and his nation was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and his enormous army. Life was rough. But Daniel would not be defeated by his circumstances. Consider Daniel's life even once he gets to Babylon. He had to attend a school for slaves for three years. He was threatened with death more than once and thrown into a den full of lions. But each attack made him stronger and more influential. It wasn't because things were difficult God's going to give you a free pass and you don't have to worry about it. But rather, because things are difficult, God is going to work in the midst of those things. He gave credit to God for the things God did. Daniel 2, he said, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demands. He had every reason to compromise, yet Daniel remained faithful to the Lord. As a result, God would accomplish much through Daniel's life. Note that if Daniel could remain faithful through what he faced, then you can too. So how are you responding? Are you more like Daniel, or are you more like the Israelites as described in Stephen's sermon? Well, Stephen wraps up his sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. And I'll be honest, this is perhaps the most direct message that you will ever see or hear. Listen to what he says, and I think you can understand why there might have been some offense to what he says as he gets to the heart of the matter. In verse 51, it says, you stiff-necked people. Okay, you can just stop right there. You have just offended everybody in the room. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Remember earlier, I stated that they knew that everything Stephen was saying was true. He was recounting their history, and surely they were aware of the many times that their fathers and grandfathers and everybody else before them had rejected the word of God. But up until this point, they had never connected the dots to where they were today. I know, he's talking about their dads and their granddads, and you can understand that maybe there's a little bit of offense here because you're talking about my family. It's still easier to talk about my family than it is to talk about me. This is the moment where he begins to connect the dots. In these three verses, we see three things that must be understood today. First, the real problem was not about past generations. Yes, he talks about family, but that's not where the problem is. The problem isn't what somebody else has done before. The problem lies within us. You have a hardened heart. That's what he's saying. You are a stiff-necked people. Then he says that they themselves have uncircumcised hearts. Both of these, obviously the stiff-necked people, we get that one. But both of these statements would have been considered insults. From the days of Abraham, God had marked his people with the act of circumcision. They were set apart from the Gentiles, and they clearly had a sense of superiority associated with this. It was the idea that they were better than the Gentiles, but now Stephen is telling them that they have uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're no different from those Gentiles that you think you're better than. Now, not only would this be viewed as offensive, but it also sends a pretty direct message. The act of circumcision was more than a ritual of belonging to God. It was a cutting away of the flesh for the purpose of protecting God's people. This would protect them in a physical sense from future infections. But in saying that they are uncircumcised, Stephen is saying that the sinful flesh still remains. And although God tries to address the presence of such sin... Your heart and your ears, they're not open to change. You've made up your mind already. What Stephen is saying is all true, but they don't like it. He even brings up the prophets. He wants to know which of the prophets your fathers did not persecute. That suggests that their fathers got them all. What their fathers didn't understand was that even in the midst of their hardened hearts, God had sent those prophets to deliver them. They were bitter. They were broken. They were hard-hearted. Yet God all along was sending individuals to pave the way for their redemption. And to me, that is an incredible grace. We sang about amazing grace earlier. 
That is amazing grace. The very people that he came to redeem are the ones who are bitter over his coming. And they've killed the prophets who have helped pave the way. God sent those prophets to deliver them, to redirect them. And in a manner, they were God's holy help. They didn't come to rebuke the people. They came to redirect them to righteousness and to holiness. So often we think about the prophets and the corrective nature of their work. So often they would proclaim that what you're doing is wrong, but the purpose was never to cause them to feel so defeated that, well, what's the purpose of even doing any of this? The purpose, the role of a prophet was to redirect people back to God, to redeem them. Still God's desire for us. You ever sat through a sermon and at the end of it, you thought, well, great, now I feel terrible. Now I know all the sin that I've got in my life. This is horrible. Glad I went to church today. Know that the purpose of God's word was never to defeat the people, but rather to redirect the people back to him. That is still the case today. The response of the people, their fathers, was to kill the messenger. They hated them because they spoke the truth to them. Let me confess that I've had individuals speak some hard truths into my life throughout the years. And I, I don't know that I've ever been glad to receive the hard truth messages. Actually, each time, it kind of hurt. But I've always known that it was being spoken because they loved me and because they wanted to see me become the man God intended me to be. Finally, the message that is hidden beneath Stephen's rebuke is that even though God sees a pattern of sin, even though God knew how hard their hearts and their ears had become, God still wanted to offer hope and grace. Jesus Christ is the ultimate offer of hope and grace. I began this morning by referencing the unhealthy pattern that could have been present in my life, as well as the pattern that I witnessed in a prison visit, a pattern of crime and punishment. What I want you to know today is that you can break free from this pattern of sin and punishment. I know this sermon doesn't work out too well for Stephen. He's killed immediately afterwards. That means that their hearts really were hard, too hard to receive the message that was given. But you can break free from the old patterns that have plagued you. You do not have to be identified by the sinful choices of your parents or your grandparents. You may look today and say, Pastor, I had great parents. I had great grandparents, not great, great grandparents, but you know what I mean. I had great, amazing heritage. Not everybody in this room can say that. Maybe you come from an ungodly family. That does not mean you have to remain on that same course. God offers grace and redemption and is so incredibly there's no way that we could ever express our appreciation to him for what he has done. Truth is, I don't deserve it, neither do you. But God has made a way for all of us to be redeemed. 
if you do come from one of those great families, I encourage you to walk in the heritage that is a part of who you are. Allow the things that you have seen to not become something that you look back on as those were the days when the Holy Spirit was a part of our family and we saw godliness. Man, it was such a blessing. Why do we have to talk in the past? Why can't those same blessings that mom and dad and our grandparents and everybody else experienced, why can't that be a part of our present? I told you earlier that Abraham was a man of God, yet three generations later, they're selling their brother into slavery. Don't count on the faithfulness of granddad. You be faithful. You be the one that's seeking the Lord. You be the one who is showing your children and your grandchildren what it is to be a man or a woman of God. The past, it can be an incredible blessing. But the present, you have a role in this. Last week, I told you that the solution to our sin problem, as described repeatedly in the New Testament, is that we must repent. Repentance is a two-part act. It first involves confession before the Lord. It involves us admitting that we have failed and that we need his forgiveness. But it also includes a turning away from whatever sin has plagued us. I'll add one more image to help you with this idea of repentance again. As Stephen spoke, he used the image of circumcision a cutting away of that which is unnecessary. Maybe it is time for some of us to cut some things out of our lives that do not belong. If you know that they're unhealthy and that they create ugliness in your life, then maybe it is time for us to get rid of them altogether. I think of the internet, unhealthy relationships, all kinds of other things that can negatively influence us. If they don't belong, get rid of them. They don't have to be a part of your life. Now, I know the church years ago was somewhat legalistic. We told people you aren't even allowed to have TVs in your home. We told people what they could and could not do. And there were many people who went home and threw things away because the pastor said you shouldn't have them. My goal is not to go back to the days of legalism. But if there are things that are in your life that do not belong, cut them out. If there are things that will lead you to a path that is not holy, that will lead you to a path where you find yourself in the midst of compromise constantly, cut them out. They do not belong. Think of King David when David had his sin with Bathsheba. David, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. That was not a sinful act, but it was a compromise. He should have been off at war, but instead he stayed home, ended up in an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and eventually becomes a liar and a murderer as well. All because he allowed one compromise to blossom into something very ugly in his life. If there are things in your life that do not belong, 
maybe the time has come for you to cut those things out, to circumcise them from your life. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow your heads with me. Father, today we believe that there is absolute grace and hope that is found in you. Father, we live in a world where sin abounds. If we look back over our families' lives, there have been many examples where sin has been overwhelming. Many, many failures. But Lord, you are a God of grace. And just as the Israelites had the opportunity to choose different, and just as Stephen's audience had the opportunity to choose different, and just as Daniel had the opportunity to choose different, Lord, I pray today that you would enable us to choose differently. Father, I pray for each one who is here, who perhaps our heritage has not been so godly. Lord, I pray that from this moment forward, Lord, that we would start a new heritage. Lord, I pray that you would not only help us to turn from our sin, help us to cut out the things that do not belong. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be holy and pure before you. I pray for those who perhaps they do have a rich, beautiful Christian heritage. Lord, I pray that this would not be something that mom and dad experienced, but rather this would be something that they have experienced. Lord, I pray that you would transform their hearts. Lord, I pray that this would be their faith. Father, we come before you today and we recognize there have been many areas in our lives that we have allowed compromise. We no longer want to allow that compromise. Father, I pray that you would make us the people that you created us to be. Help us not to get caught into the trap of a sinful normal. Lord, help us to walk in your holiness and grace. Father, you, you inspired Stephen to bring that message. And I know it was a hard message, and I know the people didn't like it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to respond different from them. Help us to respond in such a way where we say, Lord... If this is something that needs to be changed in me, Lord, I pray that you would change my heart. Lord, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to challenge you as a church to be the people God called you to be. I know last week's message, in my opinion, was very encouraging. This week's is a little more direct. If you've allowed sin, if you've allowed compromise, it needs to be addressed. If it isn't, you're going to walk that same path that others have walked. And maybe that becomes your new normal. I don't want that for you. And I don't think God wants that for you either. Choose the Lord. Thank you for being with us this morning and go in peace.